This week on A Year With, April 23rd through 29th, we encounter William Shakespeare's King Lear, the exponential reproduction of elephants in Darwin's The Origin of Species, the gambling-addicted Germans in Tacitus's On Germany, David Hume's skeptical attitude towards the miraculous, Emerson's reflection on beauty, and Ecclesiastes. Welcome to the 17th episode of A Year With, the podcast where we explore Great ideas from our common history, good ideas and bad ones by reading together for a whole year. In 2022, we're reading the Harvard Classics, which is a world literature anthology published starting in 1909. And I would ask you to please check out the introduction episode that I posted the first week of 2022, which may help you figure out what we're trying to do here. Thank you very much for being here today and let's get started. We start off this week on April 23rd with Shakespeare's King Lear. Um, As a writer, Shakespeare needs very little introduction um, as one of the most influential writers in the English language. Uh, King Lear is one of the plays that is still regularly performed. Um, I actually saw an adaptation of it at the Royal Shakespeare Company Theater in Stratford-upon-Avon about 12 years ago. Uh, it was an interesting one with a lot of intentional anachronisms, you know, things that you wouldn't normally find in the play as it was originally performed. Um, it was first performed in 1606, uh, played in the last decade of Shakespeare's public career. Um, it's a tragic play set in ancient Britain. The mythological King Lear was said to have lived in the 8th century BC. And the play follows the tragic episode of an elderly king who gives up his kingdom by dividing it among his three daughters, Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia. Lear does not divide his kingdom evenly among them, but rather splits it based on whomever loves him the most. The oldest daughter um, at once receives the lion's chair with her effusive ass-kissing, while the more circumspect youngest daughter, Cordelia, whose expression of love is perhaps the strongest, though presented quietly, measuredly, and really honestly, is then disinherited and things deteriorate from there. Um, And in this place, there's a secondary plot involving Gloucester and Earl loyal to the king, who has a legitimate son, Edgar, and a bastard son, Edmund. And like the destructive resentment among the daughters of King Lear, the illegitimate Edmund has sought to derail his legitimate brother, Edgar. Uh, This will be important in understanding the selection that we were reading today. Um, The selection so for today is from Act 4, Scene 6. At this point, things have long gone haywire. Uh, Edgar has been disinherited by Gloucester as a result of Edmund's trickery. King Lear has been wandering on a heath in a storm, having fled from both of his treacherous older daughters. Gloucester is wandering on the same heath, having had his eyes gouged out, and he wanted to jump off the White Cliffs of Dover to his death. He meets his disguised son, Edgar, who is still alive, unbeknownst to him, and asks to be led to the cliff to kill himself. Um, Edgar doesn't do this, but tells Gloucester that he did do that, and he must have miraculously survived his fall. Um, ten, He says here, Ten masts at each make not the altitude which thou hast perpendicularly fell. Th- thy life's a miracle, speak yet again. Um, 
And it, it's interesting, we're going to talk about how likely that is, according to David Hume, later on in this episode. Um, so Lear comes in, and at this point, he's still wandering the heath and has most certainly gone mad. Um, he is bedecked with flowers. He's fantastically dressed with these wildflowers, and he starts to jabber in madness. Uh, he, he's just walking around going, Nature is above art in that respect. There's your press money. That fellow handles his bow like a crow keeper. Draw me a clothier's yard. Look, look, a mouse. Peace, peace, this piece of toasted cheese will do it. There's my gauntlet. I'll prove it on a giant. Bring up the brown bills, oh well-flown bird. I the clout, I the clout. <laughs> Give the word. And he just goes on and on like that. And um, so the sadness here is that in his shame, he will not allow himself to speak to the one daughter who truly loves him, Cordelia. Um, and we'll close this section here with Lear's descent into madness at a fever pitch. Okay, so now for something completely different. Uh, on the 24th, let's return to Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. Um, just to keep our Darwin straight, we're reading two very separate works from Darwin on this schedule of readings we have. So one work is his travel journal of uh, The Voyage of the Beagle, and the other is his seminal work of evolutionary biology on the origin of species, which introduced the idea that biological species evolve through natural selection or descent with modifications. These are very different texts, but they can be read hand in hand, as one ultimately inspired the other. Um, our selection today concerns elephants and reproduction, specifically the principle of exponential growth in reproduction. Um, so I'll just quote from him here, quote, There is no exception to the rule that every organic being naturally increases at so high a rate that, if not destroyed, the earth would soon be covered by the progeny of a single pair. Even slow-breeding man has doubled in 25 years, and at this rate, in less than a thousand years, there would literally not be standing room for his progeny. Linnaeus has calculated that if an annual plant produced only two seeds, and there is no plant so unproductive as this, and their seedlings next year produce two, and so on, then in 20 years there would be a million plants. The elephant is reckoned the slowest breeder of all known animals, and I have taken some pains to estimate its probable minimum rate of natural increase. It will be safest to assume that it begins breeding when 30 years old, and goes on breeding until 90 years old, bringing forth six young in the interval, and surviving until 100 years old. If this be so, after a period of from 740 to 750 years, there would be nearly 19 million elephants alive descended from the first pair. So, uh, end quote there. Without checks to the increase, then, the world would soon be overtaken by a single species in a remarkably short time. And what are the checks to the species? Uh, we have, you know, the fragility of eggs or young animals. We have enormous destruction of plant seeds, low survival rate due to competition from other plants or animals, uh, animals serving as prey for other animals, uh, extreme cold and drought, disease. But in the case of the elephants, as Dr. Elliot notes in his blurb, we also have civilizations and circuses. And that says a lot. Um, that's probably more true in our time even than it was in Dr. Elliot's time. All right, for May 25th, we're back to the account of Germany by the late 1st century, early 2nd century Roman historian Tacitus. 
Previously, back in episode six, we saw Germans, as uh, rendered by Tacitus, as a unique people who lived in a cold, hideous, and rude land. Uh, they were warlike, and the men were often idle. Uh, you know, much different than the stereotypes we have of Germany today. Stereotypes, of course, often being unfair. Tacitus continues his description here. So, this is Tacitus. For their drink, they draw a liquor from barley or other grain and ferment the same so as to make it resemble wine. Mmm, sounds like beer. Nay, they who dwell upon the bank of the Rhine deal in wine. Their food is very simple. Wild fruit, fresh venison, or coagulated milk. Mm, not as good as the beer. Uh, they banish hunger without formality, without curious dressing and curious fare. In extinguishing thirst, they use not equal temperance. If you will but humor their excess in drinking and supply them with as much as they covet, it will be no less easy to vanquish them by vices than by arms. So, these Germans here then enjoy dancing among flaming swords and javelins and playing dice, and they're so addicted to gambling with dice that they will actually sell themselves into slavery. Um, he notes that the Germans did not practice usury or, or charge of interest, and they would rotate through the agricultural land, changing their allotments regularly, which worked for them because at the time there was so much spare land. Um, their funerals were very sparse affairs with, uh, as he says, no apparel nor perfumes on the funeral pile. We have to remember that while this appears very vivid and true to life, uh, Tacitus never traveled in Germany, and he's a secondary source. Uh, and interestingly, this work is included here in what is basically an anthology of extremely important works, and yet um, on Germany has really been regarded for most of history as a relatively minor and overlooked work of history, but I guess Dr. Elliot had uh, an affection for it. And on May 26th, we have David Hume's essay on miracles, or rather, you could probably call it Against Miracles. Um, so David Hume was a Scottish philosopher and essayist who lived in the 1700s. Um, when it came to matters of faith, he was agnostic, um, you know, which comes from the Greek, uh, does not know. Um, so he was agnostic uh, and functionally an atheist. He believed that the existence of God or gods could not be demonstrated. He carried this belief to its reasonable conclusion, and he believed that we can know nothing except through our experience, that morals are conventional, that means that they're defined as whatever makes us happy, and that we can whatever makes us happy and that we can agree upon among ourselves. And that really we have no uniform, coherent self-existence, but that we're just a material heap of perceptions. Um, furthermore, he believed that what we know and observe comes from detecting predictable patterns, that we justify belief through experience. So thus, as I said, it might be more fitting to call this essay Against Miracles, as he lays out an argument on these principles, why we ought to distrust reports of miracles. So here at the beginning, following Hobbes from just three weeks ago, who stated that imagination is just the faded and fading memory of sense, Hume tries to excavate the foundations of Christianity, as he says here, quote, Our evidence then for the truth of the Christian religion is less than the evidence for the truth of our senses, because even in the first authors of our religion it was no greater, and it is evident it must, must diminish in passing from them to their disciples nor can anyone rest such confidence in their testimony as in the immediate object of his senses. 
So in so doing this, he fails to address what you might be able to achieve by multiplying the testimony of several persons in the past rather than just one, since one testimony is weak, but the testimony of many is stronger than that of one, a principle that's observed by us in practice and say, for instance, the legal system. Um, when you testify in court, it's a lot better to have 10 witnesses than it is to have one. Um, on this basis, though, Hume not only undermines Christianity, which he seeks to do, but he also undermines everything in the world that's not known directly through sense experience. And so he's undermining history, people, places, and things in the present world that aren't really immediately present in front of us. Um, things that cannot be apprehended by the physical senses, he undermines, um, and so on. So he lays out this discourse of miracles like this. A wise man, therefore, proportions his belief to the evidence. In such conclusions as are founded on an infallible experience, he expects the event with the last degree of assurance and regards his past experience as full proof of the future existence of that event. In other cases, he proceeds with more caution. He weighs the opposite experiments. He considers which side is supported by the greater number of experiments. To that side, he inclines with doubt and hesitation. And when at last he fixes his judgment, the evidence exceeds not what we properly call probability. So regardless of my dismissal of his opening salvo, I agree with that pretty precisely. Um, then. Uh, as he says, our most common species of reasoning is the testimony of other people. Um, he says, I shall not dispute about a word. It will be sufficient to observe that our assurance in any argument of this kind is derived from no other principle than our observation of the veracity of human testimony and of the usual conformity of facts to the reports of witnesses. So he's basically, we accord human testimony, so the, what other people say, we give it credibility based on our past experience with the human who's testifying. So madmen and villains are lower in that hierarchy than sane, trustworthy people whose words usually line up with what happens. Um, and I'm still with Hume here. I, I'm, I'm following him. Um, he then defines a miracle. As he says, a miracle is, quote, a violation of the laws of nature, end quote. Since the laws of nature are that which is consistently observed, that's how we know the laws of nature to Hume, a miracle is by its nature out of the ordinary. If it were ordinary, it would be part of the laws of nature. Okay, I'm still with him here. And then this is where Hume ultimately lands. The plain consequence is, and it's a general maxim worthy of our attention, that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. And even in that case, there is a mutual destruction of arguments, and the superior only gives us assurance suitable to that degree of force which remains after deducing the inferior. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other, and according to the superiority which I discover, I pronounce my decision, and I always reject the greater miracle. If the falsehood of his testimony would be more miraculous than the event which he relates, then and not till then can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. So interestingly, this is the only part of this where Hume and I would differ. He always finds the likelihood of a miraculous report being true more miraculous than the miracle itself, and I do not. We could quibble about some of his reasons. He claims there has never been a miracle attested by men of unquestioned good sense, education, and learning. 
He says that miracles are attested more in, quote, barbarous and ignorant nations rather than, you know, civilized ones like ours. Um, There's kind of a hint, uh, more than a hint, of cultural snobbery there that whatever its merits is not really an argument about miracles, but about one's culture. Um, But it is amazing how much I actually do concur with most of his conclusions, and then how much we can actually diverge on the most important part of that conclusion. All right. So for May, for uh, the 27th, we have a piece from the 19th century American transcendentalist, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's about as much of a contrast from Hume's essay as you can imagine. This is both true in style, so you have Hume's dry analysis versus Emerson's effusive explosions of admiration for beauty, Um, Hume's icy skepticism versus Emerson's openness, and we could almost call it uh, credulity. Um, I will admit that in times of life when I have read Emerson before, I found him kind of tiring. Um, I know that's sort of like an American heresy. But I remember back in college um, thinking that reading Emerson was like eating a way too rich piece of cake. You know, like it's good for a moment, but then you tire of it really quickly and you know it's bad for you. I'm approaching Emerson today with a more open mind and we'll see what happens. Um, This essay is on beauty, but as you might imagine, this beauty is deeper than I don't like uh, runway model beauty, uh, though it includes that. Somewhere in the middle of this piece, he states... The question of beauty takes us out of surfaces to thinking of the foundations of things. This turns our usual notion of beauty on its head. We often think of it as surface qualities, but then again, do we really? So how often have you been physically attracted to a person until you got to know them? And then these significant flaws of character or personality showed themselves so much that they might have well have been disfigured in an accident in a battery acid factory. Um, This person just who looked so beautiful before now is so repulsive to you. Um, Emerson observes here, uh, beauty without grace is the hook without the bait. Beauty without expression tires. Abbe Minaj said of the president Le Belleul that he was, quote, fit for nothing but to sit for his portrait. So to Emerson, what is beauty? Um, It's simple. It has no superfluous parts. It answers exactly its end. It stands related to all things, and it's the mean of many extremes, uh, and there is an authenticity to it. So as he says, how beautiful are ships on the sea, but ships in the theater, or ships kept for picturesque effect on Virginia water by George IV, and men hired to stand in fitting costumes at a pity an hour? What a difference in effect between a battalion of troops marching to action and one of our independent companies on a holiday. In this, we can see the principles of nature where things are built for their purpose and yet have proportionality and are pleasing to the eye, and principles of various movements in architecture, like, say, brutalism, where the functional structure of a building is front and center rather than ornament. So after reading this, I'll say yes. I still feel like I ate a piece of rich cake after reading, but there is a lot of good stuff here. Um, I share Emerson's sense of wonder and curiosity a lot more than Hume's crabbed skepticism. Though I naturally gravitate more toward Hume's conclusions, I don't like being credulous. Um, One quote uh, to end with here that emphasizes the distinction between these two readings. Um, As he says, quote, we are just so 
frivolous and skeptical. Men hold themselves cheap and vile, and yet man is a faggot of thunderbolts. And that, that word here refers to like a bundle, a bundle of thunderbolts. All the elements pour through his system. He is the flood of the flood and fire of the fire. He feels the antipodes in the pole as drops of his blood. They are the extension of his personality. His duties are measured by that instrument he is, and a right and perfect man would be felt to the center of the Copernican system. Tis curious that we only believe as deep as we live. We do not think heroes can exert any more awful power than that surface play which amuses us. A deep man believes in miracles, waits for them, believes in magic, believes that the order will decompose his adversary, believes that the evil eye can wither, that the heart's blessing can heal, that love can exalt talent, can overcome all odds. And then on the 28th of April, we have the book of Ecclesiastes from the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, Dr. Eliot sums it up like this. Um, he says, 300 years before Christ, a preacher in Jerusalem complained that there was no new thing under the sun. Everything considered new had really existed in the time of the fathers. Sophisticated and modern is this writer of 2,300 years ago. I've a long time had a strong fondness for this book. Weirdly enough, I was first introduced to it meaningfully in high school through a graphic novel titled Blankets. I, I haven't seen it in, since like, you know, 2003 or four or whatever. But I remember the high school version of me finding this story very meaningful. I'm, I'm not sure how I'd relate to it now. I mean, I mean, the graphic novel, not Ecclesiastes. Um, but the narrator of that story is raised in a Christian household. And it's sort of this coming-of-age story, as I remember it, where Ecclesiastes uh, takes center stage um, in his development as, you know, from Christian to whatever he ended up as. Um, this is one of the most relatable of the wisdom texts to me, wisdom texts in the Bible, like uh, Proverbs or Sirach and things like that. Um, many of the other wisdom texts, like Proverbs or Sirach, naturally, they kind of leave me feeling like I fall short, which obviously I do. Um, this shouldn't be surprising. However, there's not a lot in the Bible that's designed for those of us who are questioners and doubters. I mean, we have the standard St. Thomas who said, oh, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail holes in your hands, Jesus. Um, maybe more surprisingly, um, that is until you revisit the stories about him. Maybe another one that uh, questioners and doubters could look up to would be Abraham. Um, in that narrative in Genesis, he hedged his bets against God's promises up until the dramatic like sacrifice your son scene. Um, he brings his nephew Lot with him when he leaves the land of Ur. He wasn't supposed to. Um, and there's the whole episode with his wife's handmaid, Hagar, when he didn't trust that God would give him a child. And I think Abraham is another one for us questioners and doubters. Um, Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is chock full of relatable material. All is vanity, goes the refrain. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing seems to have any apparent ultimate meaning. And all the striving of our lives appears to produce nothing that lasts. Here I am making these podcasts, and in 500 years, as the bits and the bytes decay and the archives of the internet are corrupted and deleted and mishandled, they'll be gone, as will the rest of my work. Um, the ostensible author here is Solomon, but he's not called by name. He's called the preacher, or Koholith. Um, he's the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. So this is a man that who, who experienced everything the world could offer. Wealth, political power, sex. Remember, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A good uh, 
good even thousand women. Um, and he learned that meaning cannot be found in any of those things. Um, as a result, he realizes that all is vanity, nothing is new, nothing is predictable, and justice is lost on this earth. So what do you do? You accept it, you get pleasure when you can, and you continue your inevitable march toward the grave. Um, the presence of this text in the Bible is kind of remarkable to some. Um, it's not particularly what you would call it orthodox, but it does add this beautiful dimensionality to the canon of scripture that I cherish. So I love this book. Glad it's here. And that is where I plan to wrap up for the week. Thank you for joining me on this reading adventure. If you're still with me, I've, I've been thinking, by the way, it is time to start pondering and planning what I'll read during the year of 2023. If you have any suggestions, please let me know. And if you have thoughts, email me at zach.garrett at outlook.com, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T -T at outlook.com. And I will see you next week. <laughs>